Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host, and you'll find us here on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm every Monday at 10 a.m. That's 10 a.m. Eastern U.S. time. You have to figure out for your part of the world. And you can catch all our back shows, including this one later today, in our archives at visionaries.podbean.com. And our special guest today is Brian Francis Calkin, who's a writer, cultural theorist, and film director. Brian, welcome back to Visionaries. Brian, you there? It's, it's a pleasure to be back. Great. I am, yes. Yeah, great. So um, we spoke previously, and Brian is into a lot of stuff. Uh, urban gentrification, boxing, Donald Trump, 21st century global capitalism. And what I'm, what I'm interested in is, I'm gonna ask Brian two difficult questions. First one is, what do all these have in common? What's your, um, what's your underlying philosophical orientation? And then after that, I'll ask, uh, what are the sources of your thoughts? What are the foundations of your intellectual ideas? So how would you draw a commonality among all these ideas and books you've been involved with? So what, what I think is missing today on planet Earth, certainly most intensely in American culture, is what Frederick Jameson called a cognitive map. Um, an idea, a, a general sense of the world, a general sense in how the world works. Just, just an elementary way of understanding things. Um, it's, it's, mm. it's very interesting. I think that a European peasant in the 13th century in France or England, they were generally uneducated, but they had a general understanding of how the world worked. They had a general cognitive frame in which things made sense. If you contrast that to the average 21st century consumer who's being bombarded every day with thousands of memes and advertising slogans and this and that, they have absolutely no cognitive map. They have absolutely no way of, um, of, of gauging the world, certainly in, in any collective measure. It's been reduced, atomized down to these um, micro views of, 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 of how the world is uh, functioning socially, politically, aesthetically. So I think my work thus far has been to establish a cognitive map, not just for myself, but, but hopefully to, to, to share with other people. Um, you know, one of the problems today, and this is something that the French philosopher Jean Baudrillard, who's reacting by, by my influence, he's definitely an influence of mine, but you know, there's a surplus of information. There's a surplus of um, of um, of technical forms that are mediating human consciousness, and we're we're just not able to think clearly anymore. So I think 
Um, that's basically the gist of my writing is trying to establish a, a cognitive map and how all these different things filter into that Donald Trump, boxing, gentrification. Um, I'm basically trying to have a dialogue with different aspects. I mean, for instance, urban gentrification. I mean, one of the things that's happening on planet Earth right now in the 21st century is we are becoming a system of cities. The nation state is no longer a viable, even though we're having this re resurgence of nationalism and populism that we see with someone like Donald Trump, the, the nation state is, is not able to function in a, in a world of digital technologies and globalized capitalism. So the city is in the process of emerging as the primary civic structure on planet Earth. And gentrification is the primary social process that is happening to these major global cities right now. So for me, gentrification is becoming an incredibly important idea and topic, something that we have to deal with. Because it's, it, you're from New York, John, or no? Uh, pretty much, yeah. I mean, look what's happened, you know, just, just to, I mean, the, the general trajectory of gentrification, even though it takes, even though it's different in each city, there's a general form by, by which it follows. After the war in, in, in New York, you had for, let, let, let's say from the 1940s and the 1950s, you know, in Brooklyn and Queens, and you had this series of uh, working class neighborhoods that were basically defined by the industrialized capitalist economy. You know, the men worked nine to five shifts, they worked in the factories along the dust. Irish neighborhoods and Italian neighborhoods and so on and so forth. And then what happened starting in the 1960s is that these neighborhoods as the, as capital started to dislocate the, um, and, and started to move these factories to the South and then eventually to China and Indonesia where they are now, you saw a, a breakdown of these working class neighborhoods. You saw these Irish and Italian families starting to move to the suburbs and, you know, you had the, the early stages of, of the post-industrial economy starting to develop. And then with that, you had this mass migration of African-American families from the South that came up and filled in these old industrial-based ethnic neighborhoods. So we entered into a period of crisis from like the late 60s up to the 1990s, where inner city neighborhoods were generally dangerous. There were drugs circulating. There was violence. And then what's happened since then is almost the exact opposite. Now that the, the industrial economy is essentially imploded, we've seen this massive reallocation of capital, information, tech, tech companies that have reconstituted urban centers as part of the global economy. And with that, you've seen this influx of, of information workers, symbolic analysts, you know, yuppies moving back into the cities I mean, what's happened? I mean, Brooklyn, I mean, you look at Brooklyn, what's happened in Brooklyn over the past 15 years. It's absolutely astounding. I mean, these working class neighborhoods that not even working class, these poor neighborhoods in the 1990s, these poor African-American. I mean, now it's a million dollars for a condo. It's, it's unbelievable. So gentrification doesn't really refer to just, you know, uh, nice real estate being built, it, it refers to a whole system of 
American and global urbanity being transformed in the era in the era of, of global capitalism. So that's that's a a, a small example. So uh, this idea of a cog cognitive map, would yes. you describe what you're trying to do as <clears throat> propose uh, identify the existing cognitive map or propose a workable cognitive map? Well, I think that I'm trying to propose I'm not at the point of, of trying to figure anything out of what to do. I'm trying to piece together the fragments of, of what's there. So I think there's always, I mean, a cognitive map is always there hypothetically. We just have to have the theoretical tools to, 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 to stitch it together. So that's what I'm basically trying to do. Um, and yes, yeah, so to, to, to answer your question, it's there, but Whereas, let's say, in the Middle Ages, or, or even in the 1950s, it was much easier to see. What's happened recently, and this is a, a direct derivative of the information onslaught that has been happening on to human beings, to human mobilization of uh, network technologies, is this cognitive map has essentially disintegrated. Like, the, having a sense of, of, of who we are as, as has become increasingly and increasingly difficult. So doing this theoretical work of putting pieces together, of forming ideological critiques and of developing a cognitive map, this is very important work today. It's very important. So um, yeah, that, that's how I'd answer that question. Interesting. So um, let if, me, let's, if I, let's, yeah. No, 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 go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, to look at this gentrification issue a little more, I'm wondering if, first of all, gentrification is a term, particularly where I come from, which is a uh, school of architecture and city planning that has, has pioneered social action and uh, supporting downtrodden neighborhoods, et cetera, et cetera. So the term gentrification often has a negative connotation. And I'm wondering if sure. uh, if gentrification means that people are more prosperous, have better jobs, don't have to do backbreaking work, unloading ships. Uh, and there are plenty of people who are excited by interested in doing these information jobs. Um, what's wrong with that other than the expense of real estate and I, I often describe that as a function of low crime. I mean, when I got to New York, you could get an apartment in Manhattan in the East Village for $75 a month. And of course, that apartment's $3,000 today. But yeah. at $75 a month, you would be burglarized once a month. That was yeah, guaranteed. Yeah. Sure. And so uh, it was a great neighborhood, but no one wanted to live there because of the crime. You get rid of the crime, suddenly everybody wants to live there. Supply and demand makes it more expensive. So if we want to solve the housing problem, all we have to do is bring crime back. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, like, like anything, it's a mixed bag, right? So, I mean, with, with gentrification, you absolutely get, get lower levels of crime. You absolutely get higher income levels. You absolutely get, a, a, as you say, less backbreaking work. Although I would... Uh, 
I'm I'm a bit uh, unconvinced that the um, what 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 you now get is is psychologically breaking work, where people are sitting in front of a computer for ten hours a day, or uh, attached to their smartphones at midnight answering emails. So I'm not necessarily sold in the idea that the new type of cognitive work, let's say a dock worker or somebody working in the union, um, but that's just my my personal preference. I I, um, I think. But um, you know, gentrification. I mean, that's that's one of the the point you bring up is is definitely one of the the arguments that people for gentrification you utilize to push back against people who are anti gentrification. Um, and and to your point, I mean, you definitely make make a point. However, what I would say to that is that there is an incredible downside to gentrification, um, and. One of the main downsides is that you see a total implosion of any social fabric, any communal, any communal narrative. Gentrification reduces urban sociality, the urban neighborhood, into single, into individuals and nothing else. So what, what you find, to, I mean, you know, in the old days of, of urban neighborhoods, you would, you know, everyone was outside talking and you know if you needed some if you didn't have any butter you'd go over and knock on your next door neighbor and see if you could borrow something what you see today is you know people are communicating solely through privatized digital networks there's no real communal life and you are correct that real estate prices are going up and stuff like that but that's also putting tremendous stress on the ability to have any any cultural or social life so I think that with anything, there's good and bad, and the real, the real theoretical work is to analyze this and try to bring forth a, a narrative. But I mean, you know, the hyper gentrification that, that is happening in cities right now, and it's not just New York, it's, it's, it's major American cities, but it's also global cities from Buenos Aires to Lagos, Nigeria to Hong Kong. There are serious problems that are coming along with the hyper gentrification of cities, far beyond the far beyond the fact that real estate's becoming only accessible for a hyper rich capitalist class, or there are or a lot somebody of somebody like me who got a rent controlled apartment forty years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but you know, if if I was to put this kind of cognitive frame or this cognitive map that's been developing in global, certainly American culture since the end of World War II, I would kind of put it in four different trajectories that have kind of now in the second decade of the 21st century have all kind of synchronized into this problem that we're all, ugh, what's, what's going on here? Um, so what, what, here's, here's my elementary cognitive map. The first trajectory it was the development of cybernetic game theory during the war that was then translated, and, and this was developed by people like John Nash, John von Neumann, Norbert Wiener. Um, but this idea that human beings at their very core are just selfish agents looking to maximize, you know, something like Ayn Rand, I guess, would be a, a, a literary development of, of, of game theory. But this idea that human beings are these selfish agents constantly scheming to, you know, get get their own, um, ha have their own ends meet and nothing else. And that basic 
mathematical model of, of human subjectivity has been disseminated into biology in terms of, you know, some, someone like Richard Dawkins, and it's been disseminated into politics and so on and so forth. So that's one strand of things. The, the second strand would be the kind of radical right-wing neoliberal economics with people like Milton Friedman and Gary Becker um, that has been the breakdown of the welfare state, the breakdown of, in, in, in American terms, would be the FDR New Deal legacy that was, um, that was um, mobilized after the Depression. And this, which again synchronizes with this idea of, of game theory, it reduces people to just singular economic agents, consumers that have no real common interest, right? So we have that. Then we have, interestingly enough, what happened in the 1960s with the, with the social revolution of resisting all of these kind of abstract um, social formations of the industrialized economy, which has now given way to what we call identity politics. And the fourth, which microelectro, these, these digital network technologies um, in Silicon Valley in the 1980s and 1990s that have now developed into these monstrous social media and, and, and all these different things. So these four, and, and uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm being very brief here in developing these these four threads, but these four threads have kind of synchronized into this. I don't know what we're dealing with right now, but it's it's. Um, I think we're all feeling a, a kind of a crisis emerging, and I think these are the ideological and material roots. These four threads of um, this fragmented cognitive map that we're all trying to grapple with today. I, I, I agree. I agree with I you, agree. and I'm thinking uh, particularly. <clears throat> so there's, um, you know, Twitter, Google, Facebook, and I remain happy with Google in terms of the search. I mean, just the ability to find just about anything. Uh, sure. <clears throat> what they're doing in terms of advertising and making money that doesn't seem to affect me right away. What I find really weird is Facebook, and you know, I don't think even I don't think anybody has an idea what they're doing. I don't even think Facebook does. And the headlines in the news today, uh, the past few days, is that Zuckerberg is flailing about looking for a model for redoing Facebook to make it something that. His users will again need, want, and trust. And he has no idea what that is. We have no idea what that is. But most of all, we don't know what it is right now. I mean, when I go onto Facebook, yeah. why am I seeing what I'm seeing? What does it have to do with what? Yeah, yeah. yeah Facebook is, has become a runaway train. And I think, as you say, even Zuckerberg himself has... You know, it's Frankenstein. He's created the monster and he doesn't exactly know how to get a handle on it. And, you know, Facebook's a publicly traded company. I mean, he has a fiduciary responsibility to his shareholders to maximize profit. So Facebook, um, like all these different social media companies, they're developing into something that is 
integrated to market dynamics. I mean, it's, again, to your point, it, it is a runaway train. And uh, even Zuckerberg himself is not able to, to, to get a handle on it right now. Um, and, you know, the initial, I mean, I think what's so funny about Facebook is the, the ideological justification that it, it uses. This idea that Facebook brings people together, I mean, this is, it's literally the exact opposite. It, it, just, it brings people further and further apart. Um, the idea that Facebook connects people, this is an absolute obscenity. It divides people. It, it disconnects people from each other. So the whole notion of uh, when, when social media started to develop, ten, I mean, it's only 10 years. You know what's so amazing about Facebook? We act like it's been around for since, since the Stone Age. It's been around for 15 years. Um, we can't even imagine our lives without it. But when, when Facebook was, was invented in 2004, these technologies were still in their very, they, they were still gestating. They, they're nowhere near as powerful as they are today. So when Mark Zuckerberg was sitting in his Harvard dorm room coding Facebook, it was, you know, college kids sharing pictures. And I don't think he could have ha had any clue that it would have developed into what it is now. So we are... Um, Social media is without question a problem, and it's going to become more a problem unless somebody – this is where politics becomes necessary. I mean, no – Facebook's not going to stop itself. These artificial intelligence in the way it's currently being developed, it's not going to stop itself. Somebody has to step in and say, wait a second, what's going on here, and develop some kind of political mobilization to address these questions. This, this is only something politics can address. This is not something the market will ever, ever address, ever. You know, I, I, I might disagree with you on that. <clears throat> I'm old enough to recall, you know, that IBM was going to dominate the world. They're now barely holding on as a corporation. Microsoft was going to dominate the world, the evil empire. And they finally recovered and are doing some useful things. Yeah, but, but they're a shadow of their former self. Uh, but, Apple but, was gonna, yeah. Know, but John, you're, you're, it'll it'll implode on its own. <laughs> oh yeah, it's, I mean may, maybe, but I mean like when you think about it only in terms of a company, you miss the, the the total abstract process that's developing. All these companies are part of a a process, a technological process. So even though IBM isn't nearly what it was, let's say in the 1950s. Other companies have taken up the, you know, the, the developmental trajectory of the whole techno-capitalist process that's 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 slowly been developing. But you know, to your point again, you could be right; it might implode on its own. But I think if it doesn't implode on its own, it's not going to willingly implode on its own, right? It's, no, I mean, but see when it's when you say. Developing. When you say the, uh, I was referring to companies, and you said the technology continues in a trajectory, I disagree in the sense that the reason these companies faded was that the technology faded. The big iron, you know, large centralized computers um, uh, were no longer important, and, and IBM faded. That um, the uh, Microsoft uh, dominated, Windows dominated, when uh, 
most of, uh, I mean, many people still have, have laptops, but very few people have desktops. And most of what people need to do, they do on their phones or tablets. Uh, and that's what happened to Microsoft. So I think that just the way we didn't predict uh, <coughs> Facebook, uh, we didn't even predict the internet, um, that Facebook will not implode out of, uh, out of hubris or bad management, but a new technology will come along that we're not even predicting now. And to think, you know, I, I like to take my, my smartphone out of my case and hold it up to my students and say, we should not think of this as something final, you know, that, that's stable, that's here. I mean, this is, this is maybe just the beginning of something we can't even predict. And to think that um, just the way you describe Facebook is so different than what it was 15 years ago, I think it might be very different again in 15 more years. I mean, I totally 100% agree with that. But the point that I'm making, though, is even as Microsoft fades away or IBM fades away, Forget about the company, as you rightly know, their technology fades away. A new technology picks that up that, that's even stronger. Right. So, I mean, it's not like the technology's fading away. It's developing into something that's even stronger. So I would just say it in a little bit different way than you, um, that Microsoft hasn't faded away. What, what's happened is that a new technological apparatus or, or um, me methodology has picked up the slack and has made it even more all-encompassing, all more mediating of our experience, and more ever-present. And again, to your point, you're absolutely right. I mean, Facebook, as it currently exists, there is absolutely no way it's going to be here in 10 years. Something, whether it's virtual reality or some kind of artificial intelligence interface, this is what's on the horizon. But the point that I'm making is that this technology is becoming, see, I, I you know, sometimes I'm a, I'm, I've, I've been accused of, of being a Luddite, of being, I mean, I'm not anti-technological at all. I am absolutely for technology that is socially useful, that is culturally beneficial, that empowers individuals. But the point that I tried to make in my writing is that this technology that's being mobilized right now is anything but that. It is absolutely sent, it's, it's, it's part of a global capitalist rhythm that is distorting our subjectivity and, and psychological health. It is, I mean, Silicon Valley has raped and pillaged um, in, in concert with, with, uh, with uh, the financial capital from Wall Street. I mean, look, look at these towns in the middle of America, in Ohio and in Nebraska. And I mean, these towns have been destroyed. A hundred years ago, 50 years ago, these towns had small, had relatively strong local economies. You had a working and middle-class population that could pay their bills and live a decent life. That's not happening today. And it has nothing to do with these towns. It ha has to do with the fact that their entire capacity to develop a, a, a minimal local economic infrastructure has been outsourced to these technological companies and to the rhythm and, and, um, and, and vibration of, of financial markets. So this is what I'm saying. I mean, so 
all my, my, the point that I've been making in my writing and, and the point that I'll continue to make is that we have to not buy in to the propaganda and, and the ideology that these companies and these systems have been using because it's not happening. So I am absolutely 100% pro-technology. I think technology is a part of the human experience and I think it'll always be part of the human experience. I mean, I, I look at a film like Star Wars and I think, wow, that's a type of society that that I would want to not 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 so much the Death Star, but, uh, you know, what the good guys had. This is beneficial technology. But what is what is happening right now? I don't see this as being beneficial at all. I see this as being um, as literally starting to pose a danger to to the human race, quite literally. So let me let me pursue two things here. One is I want to ask you about what you do on these um, social networks. But before we get to that, let's remind ourselves of Frank Norris, um, famous story, The Pit, but a series of novels about the um, 1890s Midwest Chicago um, futures trading. And uh, in one of the stories, the character is betting against the incoming grain crop and uh, uh, his position is very dire. He's about to be crushed on his uh, trades and he comes bursting into the trading room in a, in a raincoat drenched with water, which means the drought is over. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And the market flies the other way and it was all faked. You know, the drought's still on. He just dumped a bucket of water on himself. But the, he describes in that world, building the opera house, the men in their tuxedos coming in with their arm candy, with their with their women bedecked in jewels uh, to display their wealth. And in the attempts and the effect of these um, attempting to take uh, uh, short positions against the market and then the tide of grain, he describes it as a flood you know, coming up the mis from the fields of the Midwest to the granaries, to the, um, you know, to the mills, this flood of, uh, an, of both the grain and as an economic force. So I think <clears throat> we've always been subject to these economic forces. And this is the 1890s, well more than 100 years ago. Uh, they change. Um, but I don't think we should imply that these Midwestern towns were always prosperous and stable. Uh, they, they were always subject to these floods of economic forces. I am, I am by, by no means trying to, to romanticize a, a time where all was well. I, don't, I think basic struggle and there were, there, there's always been problems. But what the, the, I guess what I'm saying is that <laughs> comparing um, the the computational power of investment banks and technological companies today against uh, a steel grain mill is is ridiculous. I mean, well, the, yeah, but, the, at, the the abstract power today is a million times what people were, were dealing with in the eighteen nineties, and in the eighteen nineties, people and communities could minimally deal with these. Again, abstract, but what's happening today is, is something else. 
And, you know, I'm, I'm not, I mean, I am by my nature progressive and forward thinking. So I am no, by no means advocating to kind of turn back the clock. This, that, that's insane. I, I totally disagree with that. Um, as, as a principle, we have to move forward. But the way we're moving forward is, is problematic. It's okay, I, I totally accept that. Uh, okay. Two more quick things about uh, Chicago and Midwest in the <laughs> 1890s, turn of the 20th century. And <clears throat> I, uh, I like to uh, show my students a picture of Dubai in, uh, first of all, 1950, it's a pearl diving village. 1970, just a few years later, there's a, a little strip of three apartment buildings. And then a picture today, uh, you can see those same three apartment buildings buried by these skyscrapers. Uh, just amazing. happening within, th this is all, this is amount of time that I've been teaching at Pratt. <laughs> oh, I know, uh, I know. And I say to my students, okay, now imagine what Frank Lloyd Wright went through when he was born, there were 5,000 people in Chicago. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he moved there. It was a million. When he opened his office, it was two million. It doubled yeah. right while he was working there. Unbelievable. Uh, so that, that kind of explosive quality we're seeing in Middle Eastern and Chinese cities today were oh also undergone uh, in Midwestern American cities uh, 150 years ago. And sure. as to how stable this previous world was, <clears throat> I'm right now editing my, uh, a memoir by my mother of growing up in Queens, New York, 1920 to 1932. And she describes uh, at one point, she's working at an insurance company as a typist, and a woman in the typing pool falls over dead from starvation. And after that, the company served lunch every day. I mean, there were real yeah, yeah. issues going on 100 years ago. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I actually have a couple of friends that live over in Dubai, and I've, I've, I really like to, I have an interest in going there to visit one day. It Me looks too. Like a place. <laughs> I don't want to live there. It does, it does you know, the, the development of these, of these Chinese cities or, or a place like Dubai absolutely speaks to this explosive, explosive development of transnational capital over the past 20 years yeah. and and the incredible um yeah i mean to go from um like you say a, a fishing village to the one of the primary fi financial hubs of uh planet earth in 50 years is mind-blowing mind right. and i've been teaching at pratt for 50 years i've been watching yeah. brooklyn for 50 years so let me ask you something else pardon sure. my I, i'm uh you know, I check in on social media, just, you know, if it were to disappear, I would not notice. But uh, I follow you. Is Are you on Facebook or Twitter? Where am I seeing you? Facebook. Okay. Facebook. So yeah. on Facebook, I see your posts. So tell me, whom do you follow? Who follows you? What, what, how does it work for you? What does... What are you doing on Facebook? How is it working? What's your take on the your actual lived experience? I mean, I don't I usually go on Facebook and and write a couple, maybe two or three posts a week, just kind of tracking um, the development of the world. If I see an article that um, 
sparks my interest, I'll I'll post it on Facebook and and write a little commentary. But to be honest with you, I try not to spend too much time on Facebook because there's there's not a whole lot in there that interests me. But um, I I personally like to add my own commentary. And interestingly enough, my my most recent book, Spontaneous Reflections, um, was basically just a, an edited collection of my Facebook posts for the past three years. Yeah. Uh, so I use, I mean, you know, and then another great thing, I mean, you know, there, even though Facebook to me is ultimately socially destructive, um, like anything, there are some good things about it. I mean, I, I see my friends from high school and friends from college and and people that I don't, who I never would have kept in touch with. They're there and I can, you know, if I want to write them a message and ask them how they're doing, that's a great thing about Facebook. And, I'm, and, and, I, and I will never deny that. Um, so that's basically how I use it. I mean, I, I definitely don't do anything special with it at all. Just make a couple posts during the week. And if I maybe click like on one of my friend's pictures, and that's about as far as I take it. So let me describe something. I, I, I'm just right now, I hardly read anymore. I listen to books. But yeah. I'm right now halfway through Ben Shapiro's new book, um, The Right Side of History, I think. And what he's doing yeah. is proposing that Western culture is the result of a confluence of uh, Greek Hellenic culture and... Uh, um, uh, Hebraic Jewish culture. And sure. that's a common take that I disagree with because okay. I hold uh, Spangler's and Campbell's position that our culture begins with the Gothic cathedrals and the Arthurian romances. And that Western culture is something totally different from either Christianity or Greece. And yes, there's some remnants of Christianity in Greece, um, you know, mostly Greek columns, and uh, the uh, in terms of Christianity, I think uh, the West struggled for a long time to get rid of it. But I noticed that his book is immediately uh, a top Amazon bestseller for this okay. kind of tedious academic, uh, I think, um, out-of-date position. And I think that's a function of his media empire. In other words, the fact that he's built up uh, Twitter and Facebook followings that he can use to then uh, launch uh, a book. So what what do you think has been the role of your um, social network followings in your ability to uh, publish, launch and have read your books? Well, to be honest with you, I am not. Very I'm, I'm, I don't like self-promotion. I'm not really interested in that. So someone like Ben Shapiro, who is, um, you're right, he's, he's established a social media empire and is um, on his, uh, the Daily Wire, his, uh, his, his, his right-wing website. Um, he's savvy with that, you know, and he's used that to connect to a very wide audience. I mean, the, the type of books that I'm writing I feel like if I was to promote them on social media, it would kind of degrade the intellectual, spiritual quality of what I'm trying to do. So how so, do I mean, people I, find out about your books? I guess through social media, through, I mean, I, I guess some people through social media. I mean, I, I, I think I have a few thousand friends on Facebook and 
Um, so obviously those people find out about it. And then I guess, I'll, you know, the old fashioned way through word of mouth, through interviews like this, through some of the reviews that have been written about the books. Um, and that's it so far, you know? So let's like, say to, to me, yeah. I'm, I'm, I believe, I guess I believe in fate. Maybe, you know, if, if my writing is going to take hold, it's going to take hold. And my job as a writer is to simply show up every morning, write, and, you know, put, put stuff out there. And then what happens with it isn't really any of my business. But, I mean, I, I have very, very little interest in um, prostituting myself on social media to get followers. To That's just not who I am as a person. I mean, if people want to do that, that's, you know, that's the way the world is right now. And, and I'm not going to judge them. I mean, someone like you mentioned Shapiro – I mean, this guy has millions and millions and millions of followers. And to be honest with you, you know, I don't necessarily, you know, it's what I like about him. I've, I followed him a little bit is, you know, he has this kind of, he's, he's clearly very intelligent, very sharp guy, but he, he has this kind of common sense thing that, 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 that I can kind of identify with, but I also deeply disagree with him on, on certain issues as well. But I mean, someone like him, someone like Jordan Peterson, um, or even someone on the far left like Zizek, although Zizek doesn't really promote himself so much, um, they've, um, someone like, let's stick with Shapiro, I mean, he's very savvy with social media and promoting his work. So to me, all the more power to him. Good, good for you. Right. So uh, um, I'm delighted with the direction our discussion has taken. I had in mind something totally different, which maybe we can save for another discussion, which sure. is uh, I'm, I'm interested in people like yourself, where your ideas came from, what you would call consider your intellectual foundations. But let's save that for another show and let's wind up for five or ten more minutes with uh, why don't you run through your list of books and what briefly each of them is about. I assume they're all available on Amazon. And then also, uh, where would people follow you? Are there websites or uh, whatever where uh, people who want to follow your ideas more? Sure. Um, so the first book I wrote is called Postscript Unboxing. And the subtitle is um, The Human Body, Digital Worlds, and Boxing's Living Dead. And, and that book, my first book, is basically a genealogy of, of boxing over the mm. past hundred years. And it traces boxing as being, you know, it's and it's following with this this cognitive map that, that I that I was speaking about earlier. But you know, boxing in, in the first half of the 20th century, along with baseball and horse racing, were the most popular sports in American society. And mm. boxing specifically was popular because it related to the model of industrialized capitalism, which was men, basically in very simple terms, men working nine to five jobs doing manual labor. And the boxer kind of symbolized this culture of um, manual labor, physical labor, hard labor, but also labor that was regimented through time, right? I mean, people work nine to five shifts. And the boxing ring was these three-minute rounds. So it was it it, it was modeled off what uh, Foucault would call this this kind of disciplinary society. And what you've seen 
with boxing is as apps as 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 um the industrial economy transitioned into the white collar post-industrial economy, no longer were men working in factories or in docks, but sitting in office buildings, you, you've seen a decline of boxing culture, a decline of boxing consciousness, and really a, a, a decline of, of actually people boxing. Um, so that book was a, was a tracing of that development. Um, my second book is called There Is No Such Thing As Boston, gentrification and the disappearance of the city. And that book is, you know, similar. It's, it's giving an account of, of, the, of, of Boston using history and, and, um, and you know, it's, it's kind of a, uh, um, using multiple disciplines to give a, a cognitive map of what's happened to the city of Boston as it's transitioned from a series of ethnically bound neighborhoods into this kind of free-for-all of gentrification and globalized capitalism. And Boston is actually very big on, on bio, biogenetic uh, technologies. It's a huge center for, um, for uh, not just information technology, but, but for biological technology. So it's kind of been an account of that. My third book is called Conversations on Gentrification. And that's kind of more of a, uh, uh, less so on Boston, but more of like a kind of a, a discourse on gentrification as a global phenomenon, as a global planetary phenomena. What gentrification is, how planet Earth is becoming just a system of cities, and speaking about what how gentrification fits in to uh, 21st century life. Uh, my fourth book is called The Meaning of Trump, and that was published by Zero Books, a, a very, very excellent publisher over in the United Kingdom. And that was a Basically just a book, I think we talked about this last episode, but that was a book about the election of Donald Trump, what it signifies in terms of um, both American political history and for this very, very critical moment right now in contemporary geopolitics and how I, I kind of saw this resurgence of nationalism and Trump-style digital populism as being a rejection of neoliberal capitalism and, 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 and globalization that's been happening to, um, to America and planet Earth over the past 30 years. And then my next book was called On Heroin, which was an account of the American opiate crisis since the late 1990s and kind of analyzing how that happened, why that happened, who's been affected, um, and kind of like also kind of critiquing the models that have been mobilized um, to, 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 to deal with it um, as well. And then, my, and then my most recent book is called, as I said, Spontaneous Reflections. And that is an account of basically a, a compiled collection of, of all my faith. It's actually 300, it's, it's a long book, but it's a, it's, it's a compiled edited collection of my Facebook posts and then my eighth book, which is be coming out in May, is called The Ayahuasca Dialogues. Mm. And, I, and I co-wrote that book with a very, very well-respected shaman in the, uh, who lives in the jungle of the upper Peruvian Amazon. And we're talking about ay ayahuasca and globalization. It's, 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 I, I think that's going to be my most popular book by far. And that will be published this May. And then I'm, I'm working on about three or four more projects, including my first novel, um, I actually have a screenplay that's with somebody out in Hollywood right now. We're trying to get that going. So I'm, I'm, I'm definitely busy right now. Fantastic. Um, 
So listen, my yeah. guest has been Brian Francis Calkin. And <clears throat> Brian, uh, you just raised uh, maybe a half a dozen potential future shows we might do with these topics, including shamanism, in which I'm, I'm also interested. So uh, are there websites where people should be following you? Yeah, my sure. Yeah, I I have my website, which is www.briancolkin.com, and then I have my my Facebook that I post on every you know a couple times a week, which is just if you type in Brian Francis Culkin on Facebook, I'll, I'll come right up. All my posts are public, and then I also um, maintain a site called the www.thegentrificationofboston.com which I write essays and, and articles occasionally about the situation that's happening in Boston. And, and, and that's it. But I mean, everything is on briancolkin.com. That's, that, that's the main site. Great. So listen, yeah. Brian, thank you. This is John LaBelle, your host. You've been listening to Visionaries on PRN.FM and all of our other outlets. You can get us on lots of podcast systems, iTunes, etc. And you'll find my back shows, including this one, in a day or so on visionaries.podbean.com. Brian, thank you. Thank you, John, for having me. I'd love to come back anytime. Thank you. Great. Bye-bye.